You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Good morning. We continue our series on Galatians, uh, Live Free. And we're talking about living free from self, from sin, from shame, and from religion. Now, today I want to talk to you about spoons. That's right, spoons. Uh, We are going to talk about how this does not work to change lives. You know, uh, there's a movie that came out in the 70s, and it was a movie called Escape from Alcatraz. You're going to see a slide from that in just a moment. And it starred um, Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood was uh, playing the part of three guys who in real life were prisoners in Alcatraz and how they were, uh, well, planning a breakout. And what they did is they, they took spoons and they took forks and they broke them and they turned them into shivs and they, they scraped out a vent area and then paper mache a fake vent and then they paper mache heads and, uh, and then they put them in their beds. And what they did is they, they had had this whole plan and they, they made rafts out of material there in the prison that they had been accumulating and taking. And they got out of the prison, but they didn't get off the island. Nobody knows what happened to them. Their bodies were never found. And this last... Um, fall, I had an opportunity to go and see them. Now, hey, Luke, if you could throw up that slide of, uh, of the three guys, and this is the paper mache heads they made, and, and uh, um, there's a picture of one of the spoons that they actually cut into a, a key. They were actually able to make key, and then they, they dug it out in the hole, and they weren't even detected. They weren't even found, and uh, they, they don't know where they went. They never found them. Now, I did happen to go to San Francisco Bay this last fall, and that bay is huge. It is huge. And the likelihood that they actually got to land is very, very small. It's most likely they either uh, froze or they were pulled out into uh, the ocean because it's right there in the bay. But I tell you what, today, as we continue Galatians chapter 3, it has a lot to do with spoons, our effort to try to escape from the prison that we are in. Here's the background of Galatians. I'm going to come back to this here in a minute. The background of Galatians is this. The apostle Paul planted some churches in Galatia, and then some false teachers came in behind the apostle Paul after he had left, and they were telling the Galatians, these new believers, former mercenaries and warriors, that in order for them to be truly a Christian, that they had to follow the Old Testament to the letter of the law. And the Apostle Paul was furious because he laid out the gospel as simply this, is that Jesus walked the earth and that Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again to rescue us from our sin. If we will by faith believe that, we are born again. But these false teachers were saying, no, 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 you must follow the Old Testament law. So what the Apostle Paul does particularly in chapter three, which is one of the most complex chapters in all of Paul's writings, he unpacks using the Old Testament, he teaches him that it's through faith alone in the gospel. Because this is repeating theme, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and Jesus plus anything equals 
nothing. So today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Galatians 3, verse 15. And uh, we're taking a few weeks to get through chapter 3 because of, of all the chapters in the New Testament. It's one of the strangest and the more complex. Last week, Paul made the case that Abraham, who's the, the father of, of Christianity, really, and the father of Judaism, that Father Abraham, that Abraham was credited as righteous by faith not by following rules, but by believing the word of God. And so we also live by faith, by believing in Jesus, the word of God. So let's pick it up where we were. By the way, he he nails this down. Let's back up two verses, Galatians 3.13. He says this, that the law is not only able to save us, it not only can save us, but it's also a curse. In Galatians 3.13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. That, or the word there literally means wood. And it's a reference to, uh, Paul is making reference to the crucifixion there intentionally. So here's the big question. How in the world can the Bible, the Old Testament, be called a curse over and over again? For them, it seems confusing. Honestly, for us, it seems confusing. I mean, he's using the Old Testament to preach a message to the Galatians. And in that message, he uses the Old Testament to say that the Old Testament is a curse. How is it possible? In other letters, uh, similar things are said. He writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that the law, the Old Testament commands, kills us spiritually. Romans 4, he said that the law brings a curse and the wrath of God. And then in Romans 7, he says that the law brings death. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, he said that the law empowers sin, that the power of sin is the law. And in Hebrews 10, 28, the writer says that the law is without mercy. So it seems like a lot of bad things are said about the law. I thought the the Old Testament was God's word, you might think. I thought the Old Testament was good. How can it be a curse? How can it be death? How can it be something described so badly? Are rules bad? Should we, should, if, if rules are bad, why do we have laws? Why do we have speed limits? Why do we have seatbelt laws? Why do we have laws against murder and laws against crime and theft? Why do we have laws? Why do we have rules? If the law is bad and brings a curse, do we need to stop giving our kids rules? Stop having boundaries. Should we not have them or get rid of them? This is the question today that Paul is responding to, is if the Bible, the Old Testament particularly, is God's law and it brings a curse, how can it be good? So Paul explains with an everyday illustration, and that's where we pick up in Galatians 15, all right? Today's message is called Prison Break. It's gonna make a lot more sense You're not going to be able to get out of prison digging your way out with a spoon. It takes something greater than your own efforts. Let's take a look. Galatians 3.15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant or contract that has been duly established, so it is in this case. What's he saying? We're going to take this piece by piece because it's actually quite hard to follow if we don't. What he's saying basically here is that in the terms of a contract, they're set, they're set in agreement and done. I can't say I'm not going to do something that is different from an established contract that is in agreement. For example, uh, we bought our house 20 years ago and we have refinanced a couple times and the terms of that refinance and of that mortgage are set in a contract with many pages that I have signed, right? And these contracts tell me the payment for our house is due on the first of every month. Now, what if I decided, I think, because I don't like the first anymore, that I should pay the rent on the 15th of the month? Or better yet, what if I decide, you know what? I don't even think I should pay anything at all. And I don't feel like it. What would happen? Well, I would get foreclosed on. If, I, if this was a pattern, I would be foreclosed on and the house would be taken away. Why? Because I broke the established contract rules. It's already established. And Paul is saying that contracts and covenants among people are established and can't be changed. So he says, in the same way, long before the law, God established a contract, a covenant with Abraham that says our righteousness is established on faith. And he says that was established long before, 430 years before the law was written, years before, you know, the sacrificial system was established. And he says, listen, this was a pre-established covenant. We are made righteous through faith and believing in God's word. So he says back to Abraham, he says this, verse 16, the promises were spoke to Abraham and his seed. That's a singular. That's a quote right out of Genesis 22, 18 that says, God promised Abe that in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, he says, the scripture does not say into seeds, that means your offspring, the many offspring that will follow. He says, but many people, but he says, and to your seed, meaning singular. And Paul says this, he says, meaning one person who is Christ. I love that. He says, man, this, this promise to Abraham was a prophecy of the one Jesus Christ. And the promise to Abraham was a promise of the one who is the promised one, which is the word Messiah, Hamashiach, which is, is the Greek equivalent Christ. See, every time you say Jesus Christ or, uh, or Jesus the Messiah, you're saying Jesus the promised one, the anointed promised one. And this is what Paul is saying, that this promise to Abraham was a promise of the one. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. That means 430 years after God said, Abraham, you are righteous by faith in believing in my word. He says 430 years later, the law shows up. Okay, the Old Testament. Uh, Moses writes the law. And he says... 
What I mean is that the law does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. By the way, what I love here is in these 10 verses, you can count them, there are six times he says the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise. And he refers to the promise that God gave Abraham and the promised one who is Jesus. And he says it here, the, the, the law does not override the previous established promise. The commandments of God, the Old Testament does not override righteousness by faith. See, those teachers that were coming into the church after Paul were trying to quote the commands of Moses and telling them that if you really wanted to be a Christian, you must follow all the commands of the Old Testament. You must follow all the rules, rites, and rituals that were commanded by Moses. The false teachers were quoting the commands, but Paul was quoting the promise, the original agreement with God. I want you to write this down, another great example of the faithfulness of God. This is so amazing. Over and over again, the promises, the promises, the promises of God. Listen, God is faithful. He doesn't go back on his word. You can promise. You can take his promises to the bank. They are for sure. They are forever in amen. Maybe you're wondering, God, are you really there? God, are you faithful? God, will you really answer the prayers that you've said that you would answer? Are you really going to do what your word says? Listen, God is not finicky or fickle, but he is firm in his promises. Six times, I promise the promise, his promise. God keeps his word. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, that's our salvation, depends on the law, that's the commandments of God in the Old Testament, then it no longer depends on the promise, the promise of Jesus, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise, the promise of a son. See, just as Abe was promised a one chosen son, the son of Abraham gave us the one chosen savior who is the promise for all mankind. He says, if we can receive salvation through the commandments of the law, then we no longer need Jesus. And we no longer needed, Abraham no, no longer needed that promise of his son. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? This is the million dollar question. This is the question that denominations debate and argue. We have whole denomination groups that live by the Old Testament as if it's required today. I know there are subgroups of Christians that, that follow the laws, that practice, you know, all the holidays, and they eat kosher, and they, man, we just got established them. We need to do them. And so the question is, Paul is saying, if the law brings death, and the pre-established covenant with Abraham, righteousness by faith, is what we are to believe in, then why did God give the law at all? Why did God give us the Ten Commandments? Why did God 
give it at all. Why was the law, uh, law given at all? Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, the transgressions of men until the seed, that's Jesus, the seed, that's Jesus to whom the promise referred to had come. You see, the law was temporary because it was waiting for Jesus. I want to give you three reasons why we are given the Old Testament commandments, all right? Three reasons why I have in my Bible here an Old Testament and a New Testament, all right? Old and New Testament right here. We don't throw out the Old Testament. Here's three reasons why we were given the commands. The first one is this. It was given to reveal God's holy standard and character. God was giving mankind his standards and his expectations. The law is a teacher of the heart and the character of God. You want to know what God believes about something? You look at the Ten Commandments. You look at the law of God. See, when we think about what's happening in our world today, God hates murder. He hates it. Doesn't matter what the person looks like, God hates murder. So he says, thou shalt not murder. God hates theft. It doesn't mean if it's, quote, justified or not justified. Listen, thou shalt not steal. That's the heart of God. God loves the sanctity of marriage. He knows the pain of abuse, of adultery, and of separation. That's why it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's spouse, your husband, their husband or wife. You see, the first five of the Ten Commandments talk about the heart of God. You shall have no other God before me. You'll make no image of me. I'm not like anything you've ever seen. You will worship me and me alone. You will put me first in the beginning of your week. You will put me first in the beginning of your life. You'll have no other gods before me. The first five are about God's love for us and they're to be about our love for God. The second five are about how we interact with people because God loves us and he loves people and he knows that we have a tendency to be selfish. So he says, you want to know what I think about people? Don't lie to them. Don't steal from them. Don't murder them. Don't take things that don't belong to you, that belong to somebody else. These reflect the heart of God. So when I see what's going on, I know the heart of God is broken because the law is a guide. It's a teacher of the heart and character of God. One of the reasons why we have the Ten Commandments, it is, reveals God's character. Number two, it curbs. The purpose is to give restraining, to restrain the transgressions of people. This is what Paul had just referenced there. Lest we tear our part with self-destructive behavior, the law is to keep us in check. It tells us what we ought to do and how we need to treat each other. The law is there to give us not only the heart of God, but some common sense restrictions to restrain ourselves from being completely selfish people. Just because we are hurt does not mean we have the right to lash out because God has given us the curb. I think of, um, 
of when my kids were little. You know, and they wanted to go play outside. And, and I said, you can play in the backyard. And you have a fence in the backyard. And I knew that as long as they were in the fence, they would be fine. And the fence was not meant to restrict their, their fun, but to release their freedom. They could go anywhere they want. They could do anything they want in the yard, in the parameter of that fence. But when they went out in the front yard when they were little, we had to be with them. And they had a lot more restrictions, actually, because of the dangers of a car, someone uh, coming and getting them, them wandering off, them getting hurt. Listen, God's law is not to restrict our freedom, but to release our freedom, to give us a sense of liberty in the parameters. It's to restrain us from destroying each other. And that's one of the purposes that God gave the law. Paul says he gave it because of the transgressions. And then he gave us this Ten Commandments for a third reason. The third one is to mirror. It reveals our innate rebellion and need for salvation. That same yard illustration that I gave you earlier to keep us safe often becomes a point of contention and frustration for children. It's like the, the yard is yours, but yet they want to climb the fence. I remember clearly climbing the fence, getting out when they were too little to, to, to be out on their own. And that fence became a, a symbol of frustration. Well, it revealed the innate rebellion in our heart as kids. Well, some people say, well, you know what? You can't tell me what to do. God can't tell me what to do. The Ten Commandments, those are 10 suggestions. But my feelings and desires want something different than what God's word says. See, the Ten Commandments is God's top 10 best list. There's over 600 commands in the Bible. Half of them deal with civil law, which passed away as the civil law changed into different civil surroundings. But there's the moral law, which transcends time. And maybe you don't like God's moral law because your feelings and desires dictate your direction. Listen, the law is a mirror that reveals our rebellion and our need for salvation. While the Old Testament says you're bankrupt, deep in sin debt, the Old Testament also reveals our rebellion and our need for salvation. Romans 7, 7. Paul says this, well, then I'm suggesting that the law of God is sinful. Am I saying that the law of God is a bad thing? He says, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. It, it mirrored my rebellious heart. It showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. See, the Old Testament commands prepare us for the need and the work of the Messiah. That's why I always encourage people, if you're just getting started on reading the Bible, 
I suggest that you don't start in Genesis because the Bible's not like a regular book that's read from cover to cover. It's actually a selection and collection of 66 different books and letters. So you don't have to read it from cover to cover because it's not necessarily written in chronological order. What I always suggest people to do who are new to reading God's word or new to Jesus is read the gospels. Meet Jesus, walk in his steps, listen to his teaching. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read them all, read Acts. That's Jesus part two. And then read the Old Testament. Because what happens is the more you know Jesus, the more you see Jesus in the Old Testament. And those things in the Old Testament that you thought were just strange and weird, they all of a sudden begin to make sense in light of Jesus. I love God's word. Matthew 5, 17, so did Jesus. He says this, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, Jesus said or the prophets, that's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean, fulfill? Jesus fulfilled them, he did not destroy them. Jesus didn't say, all right, just rip, you know, the Old Testament right out, all you need is the New Testament, rip it all out. Jesus never said, get rid of the Old Testament. He said, however, that I did fulfill the Old Testament. They still serve the same purpose to guide, to curb, and to mirror, but they do not save. They do not save. The law is how God looked at us before Jesus, cursed and condemned, but the cross is how God looks at us now through Christ, righteous and forgiven. Maybe you're not feeling yourself. Let me give you an example. Maybe you're not feeling yourself this week. Maybe you're just kind of feeling, you know, weird. You ever had one of those moments where you're just feeling like sick, but it's not a normal sick. It's like something strange sick. And as you get older, those kind of feelings begin to be something that stirs anxiety. What if, you know, why do I keep having these headaches? Why do I have this, this pain in my chest? Or, or why am I getting these, these, these lumps in my neck? And all of a sudden, you're like, you're getting nervous. And you have an opportunity. You just can't figure it out. But you can either go to the doctor or you can ignore it. What do you do? Do you go to the doctor or do you ignore it? Because if you don't go... You live unsettled, and you, but you also live oblivious to what it is. So you never know if you have something bad, but because you don't know, you, maybe you're not going to be as worried. And I know a lot of guys particularly that do that. They get sick and they, ah, I'll just, I'll just truck through it. I'll just push through it, right? I'm, I'm guilty of that. You know, we think if I don't know what it is, then maybe it's not going to be what I think it is. So you cannot go and be oblivious and still unsettled. But if you do go, you might be told that you're very sick. And when you go to the doctor, you get sometimes bad news. The doctor's not always good news. A lot of times we go to the doctor because we're not feeling well and the response is, well, I got some bad news for you. You've got this or this, depending on how serious it is. And the diagnosis reveals a real problem. And it's not good news. It is news that brings despair. That is why some avoid the doctor, because they don't want to be told that they're sick. 
They just want to ignore the symptoms, ignore the signs. But if you're sick and you don't go, you're still sick. And just because you don't go to the doctor doesn't mean that if you have a serious ailment that it's going to go away. You're just ignorant and unaware of what it is. In the same way, you're given a diagnosis when you read the word of God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like a doctor. It reveals a problem. And by itself, it's not good news. By itself, it's actually bad news. That's why the New Testament, the Gospels are good news. The Old Testament still has the same purpose today, to curb, to, to guide, to curb, and to mirror. And according to God's laws, you are sick and need help. Jesus doesn't destroy the Old Testament doctor. You still need to know. However, there is a remedy. I want you to take a look at this. The Old Testament is the doctor who gives the symptoms, the diagnosis, and the prognosis. Think about that for a second. The Old Testament is the doctor that gives you the symptoms the diagnosis, and the prognosis. But the New Testament, if you could put that slide up, the New Testament is the prescription and the remedy. If you could look at the Bible like, I, I still need to go to the doctor and figure out why I'm feeling this way. I still need to get a diagnosis. And I still want to know what the prognosis is. That's the Old Testament. We still need it to guide, to curb, and to mirror. But thank God, the New Testament, Jesus brings the prescription for our ailment and the remedy through the cross. Galatians 3.19, he goes on to say that the law was given through angels, spiritual beings, and entrusted to a mediator. He's talking about the prophets and Moses. Moses, they were all mediators in the Old Testament. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. This verse here is one of the more debated verses in the Bible. It's a tricky passage. It's hard to figure out. Basically, it means this, that the Old Testament commands uh, are a two-party system where you have God and a mediator, which is the law uh, like Moses and, and the prophets. So the Old Testament is a, is a God, man, two-person mediator, but a mediator. But then Paul says, listen, but God, however, is one. There's a new way. The law and the prophets are the mediator, meaning if you will do this, God will do this. But the problem is we don't follow his commands very well. But here's where God comes in. Because God is one, we don't need man as a mediator anymore. This is what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus is fully man, but the Bible also says he is fully God. It's the miracle of the kenosis of Christ. God is fully man, God is fully in the flesh, in Jesus. 
God himself is the mediator. Listen to this for a second. It's not the father and then Jesus and then us. It is the father who's manifest himself in Jesus and then us. We talk straight to Jesus, not to a priest, not to, I don't have to confess my sins to some church or an organization or some leader. I confess my sin to the mediator, God in the flesh, Jesus. For God is one. The Father gives us himself in his son, Jesus. God himself is the mediator. God does it alone. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, how that covenant between God and Abraham, how it was done alone, by God alone. Verse six, he says, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. See, the law and the prophets are Old Testament mediators. If you do this, God will do this. But the New Testament Jesus is our new and only mediator who says, if you have faith in me, I will do this. Here's another question that Paul asked in Galatians 3. Again, this chapter is a little tricky, so we're just going piece by piece. And then we're going to kind of do some walkaways here in just one minute. Um, just a couple more verses before we begin to wrap this up. Is the law, verse 21, another question. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Are the Old Testament commands opposite of what Jesus says? Is that righteousness by faith alone that God established with Abraham opposite from the commands of God that are calling us to live out God's standards? See, there are cults that take on this opinion that they're different. There are some that have said the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, that they're opposed to each other, that they can't be the same. Well, they misunderstand the meaning of the guide, curb, and mirror. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? He says, absolutely not. They're not opposite of each other. They're not fighting against each other. The Ten Commandments and the grace of God are not opposite of each other. He says, for if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He's saying if we could be made right with just the law, then why would we need the promise of God for salvation through faith? The law is incomplete. It's a primer coat. I'm doing some work in my house right now and I replaced the tiles in my, uh, in my foyer, in my fireplace. I'm about to tear my bathroom apart and put in tile. And I tell you, I had to, had to prepare the floor. Had to, had to prepare the floor, had to put a primer on it, a, a material that the tile would and the mortar would stick to, had to prepare. The, you know, if all I did was put primer on the floor, my wife would be upset. She wouldn't be happy. And my kids wouldn't like it either and look bad. It'd look gross. If all you did was put a primer on a wall or a primer on your car, it's incomplete. The Old Testament is the primer coat. Jesus is the fulfillment. If our righteousness is based on our ability to keep commandments, we are in trouble because we're terrible at it. But the law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, and the other commands are incomplete. It simply says to keep it, and if you break it, you'll be judged. They do not impart 
the life of God and righteousness, which leads to another problem. Some say, well, that it's good for nothing, that we should just get rid of the Old Testament altogether. Then when I was a kid, when I first became a believer, I used to carry a, a pocket Bible with me all the time. Now I have it in my phone, right? You have your phone with you. I used to carry a little pocket, look like a wallet with me at all times. And I highlighted all the verses that I could uh, use to share the gospel with people. And, and I had one that was about the size of my wallet that was the whole Bible. You know, I was young because I could still read it real good. And, uh, but there were some that were just the New Testament. You know, they didn't have the Old Testament. So uh, the Gospels do tell us all we need to know to be saved. But what the Old Testament does, it gives us the character and the standards of God that he's called us to pursue. Paul gives us a great word picture in Galatians 22. This is where we're going to wrap it up, these two verses, and then I want to uh, bring you some take-homes, all right? He says this, great word picture, 322. This is why this sermon is called Prison Break. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. What's the scripture he's talking about? The Old Testament, the law, the Old Testament, all right? The scripture has imprisoned everything under the control of sin. Guess what? That's all of us. We are all under the control of sin, every one of us. I am controlled by sin if I am not controlled by the Spirit. Thank God through Jesus I can now be controlled by the Spirit, which Paul's going to talk about in two chapters. But apart from Christ, we are all imprisoned and controlled by sin because of the Scripture. So that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ might be, by the word, by the way, Christ is promised one, so he's saying it again. But given through faith in Christ, the promised one might be given to those who believe. Everybody say, who believe. Before the coming of this faith, faith in Jesus, we were held in custody. We were arrested. We were in jail. We were put in prison under the law of God. Locked up until faith that was to come, Jesus, that's Jesus, would be revealed. See, the Old Testament is not imprisonment, but it reveals you are imprisoned as one who breaks the laws of God. The scriptures point out our rebellious nature and puts us in a spiritual prison on death row. I want you to take a look at it this way. This is the illustration that Paul gave. Take a look at this graphic. It says, scripture is the judge and the sentence. Sin is the prison and the abusive jailer. We are born behind bars and sit captive to sin. He says, until faith in Jesus would be revealed. Some of you say, well, I'm not a prisoner to sin. I, 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 I don't have to sin. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You don't think you're a prisoner to sin? Okay, then stop sinning. 
well, I, I can't stop seeing. I'm, I'm going to lie a little bit. I'm going to have a bad thought every now and then. Well, guess what? You are a slave to sin. You can't stop sinning because we are slaves and chained to sin. You can't get out of this, of this prison. You can't with your own efforts, dig your way out of your sin. This prison is inescapable. But Jesus swings the bars wide open to that cell. And in a mass prison break, he sets free the captives by faith. I want to give you a couple of things as we wrap this up. Observations from the prison break. I'm going to hit these pretty quick. Observations from the prison break. Here's the first one. According to these passages that we just read, we are all born prisoners. All of us. All of us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious sins. We've all fallen short. We are born behind bars. You are born behind bars. Your family is born behind bars. Your kids are born behind bars. Your neighbors are born behind bars. Your friends are born behind bars. We are all born prisoners. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, that we sin because we are born sinners. Let me tell you something. Nobody here ever chooses to sin. We sin by default. That's our pre-programmed default. No one had to teach me to have a lustful thought. I have them. No one had to teach me to, to be defensive or to get angry or to maybe protect myself with a lie. That's default. You know, when you're little kids, you know, nobody teaches them to bite or to grab or to say no or to hit. You have to teach them not to do that because that's default. Default is sin. That's why Paul goes on to say that we must learn to walk in the spirit because if we don't, we are by default walking in the flesh. We don't choose to sin. We sin because we are slaves to sin, born in sin as prisoners, captive by our own sin. John says, if anyone thinks they are a sinner, they are a liar. And they don't know the truth. Second thing, observation from the prison break is that you cannot break out yourself. You cannot break yourself we cannot break ourselves out of prison. All your efforts will never gain access to God. Maybe raised in church. Maybe uh, you're going to start today and start being a good person from right. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you've been in church your whole life or if you're starting today, it's too late. You're already in prison and you can't get out on your own. No, those guys, they were able to get out of their cell and there's evidence that they were able to get through the walls inside of the building and get to the roof, and they were able to get off of the island, but they were not able. There's no evidence that they were able to make it to shore. Their escape failed. We all fall short. I, I like to give you this illustration. Imagine... Okay, we're in Texas. Maybe you're watching this someplace else. But we're in Texas, and if, if uh, Jesus were to show up and say, listen, if God were to say, Hawaii 
is salvation. Hawaii is the promised land. Hawaii is the place where God's kingdom is at. Some of you guys in Hawaii who've been there are like, yes it is, but it's not really where it's at. So Hawaii, so God says, you gotta go to Hawaii if you wanna go to the kingdom of God. So all of us are like, all right, let's go guys. So we begin our journey to Hawaii. All we gotta do is walk to the coast and then swim to Hawaii. That's all we gotta do. Walk to the coast and then swim to Hawaii. Some will get farther than others. Some will get to, you know, won't get out of Texas. Others will, won't make it through the deserts of New Mexico. Some of you will make it to the Rockies. Some of you might even make it to the ocean. Some of you might dive into the ocean and begin to swim. And if you're a great swimmer, maybe, just maybe, you'll make a couple miles out into the ocean towards Hawaii. Many of us will make it at different degrees, but no matter how great an athlete, no one can walk and swim to Hawaii. It's impossible. We will all fail. Some will get farther than others, but no one can do it. Some will get more help than others. But we'll all need life-saving help as we drown in the ocean. Every one of us has failed. Every one of us has fallen short. Some more than others. Some of you, you've been a good person, but you've still fallen short. Some of you, you know that you are a prison, uh, a prisoner to your sin, and you need help. Some of you, you know great grace, and you know what I'm talking about. But we all still fail miserably and will perish in a sea of sin. I want you to, here's an example of this. There's some examples here in relation to walk versus faith. You've got to the works. If we want to try to work our way to God, there's a ladder to God versus a faith which God comes down. The works, it's about what you do while faith is about what Jesus did. Works compares ourselves to others. Well, they're not as bad as me and, or they're worse than me, so I must be doing pretty good. While faith compares ourselves to Jesus who is righteous alone. Works causes pride. Look how great I am or despair. I'm never going to be good enough. But faith says it causes humility and joy. Works brings the curse of God while faith brings the blessing of God. Here's the third thing. Observations from the prison break is number three, you must realize that you are a prisoner in need of rescue. Listen, Adam and Eve needed Jesus. That's why at the very beginning, there's a prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. That's a prophecy of Jesus. Abraham and Sarah needed Jesus. That prophecy promised to Abraham that the seed of the promise will rescue the world because Abraham and Sarah needed Jesus. Moses needed Jesus, for the law points to our need and the promise of a Messiah. The disciples who walked with Jesus needed Jesus. As Paul even later writes, what a wretched man am I, but thank you God for Jesus. Every man, every woman, you, me, we, they, the world needs Jesus. 
when I look at all the chaos that's happening this past week and the heartache on both sides of, of people who are being uh, receivers of, of, uh, of injustice and those who are receivers of the retaliation of years of injustice, I, I see that God's heart is breaking and that we need Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. You need Jesus. Luke 5, Mark 2, Matthew 9, Jesus says, I've come for those who know they're sick. I've come for those who know they need help, not those who think they don't need help. Because you must first realize you're a prisoner in need of rescue. Matthew 5, 33, Jesus said, blessed are those who, uh, who are poor in spirit. That means bankrupt. That means flat broke spirit. Over and over again, we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. This is why so many uh, never give their life to Jesus. This may be why you never have, because you don't think you need him. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. I don't do bad things. I'm a patriot. You know, I do, I do decent things to people most of the time. I go to church. You know, I, I, I'm a polite person. Listen, you need Jesus. You are a prisoner in need of rescue. No matter your lot in life, raised in church or raised in the streets, you need Jesus. Here's the fourth observation is we must respond if we are to walk away from this prison. Prison break, you must respond. It's like Jesus kicks the doors of that prison gate open, but you got to walk through. You got to walk through. Galatians 3.22 says, Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Maybe you don't believe this. Maybe you know someone who doesn't believe this. What Jesus did on the cross does not automatically apply to everyone on the planet. Just because Jesus died for all does not mean that everyone is automatically right with God and a child of God. The Bible says that we become children of God by receiving by faith what Christ has done. Some false teachers teach that because of Jesus, we're all gonna go to heaven now. False. This is false. I've got lots of passages in your notes there. Take a screenshot, look them up later. Here's just two more of them. Acts 13, 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. A justification, that means a declaration of righteousness that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Paul writes this in Romans 10.4. He says, Christ is the culmination, the finale, the climax of the law, the fulfillment of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross is our salvation. The only power that can actually change your heart and change our actions is found in the gospel of Jesus released by faith. You must respond to be free from your prison. Here's the last thing, and this is important. This kind of comes down to why we need the law to begin with. Is number five, Paul says this, even though the law is fulfilled in Christ, 
we still need the deterrent of prison. Even if prison and our laws do not stop all crime, we still need laws in jail and prison to deter crime lest we destroy ourselves. But how many of you know laws are not the answer if a heart is still dark? How many of you know that someone in jail or prison does not fix someone unless the heart is made new? They only deter the problem. And for that reason, we still need the law to deter our self-destructive behaviors. Likewise, Paul says we need the law to curb, to mirror, and to guide us. Because the Old Testament is still God's beautiful word. So I want to end with this thought today. Are you in prison today? Some of you are in prison. You're in prison to sin. Some of you. And you know it. Some of you, you're in prison to your selfishness, to a habit. Maybe you're in prison by pride and fear. I was once a prisoner. I was once one who was bound in my sin and selfishness. I was behind bars spiritually. But thank God that he sets us free. Jesus says this. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and burdened. Have the weights of chains on you, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, that's my life. The burdens that I will give you are ones that are filled with joy. He says, take my will for you upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The doors are open. The doors are open this morning. Will you walk through? Those chains are broken. Will you walk through the doors? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Sometimes you mistake your chains for freedom for freedom, and your prison for a home. It's time for a prison break. As we leave today, I want to lead you in a prayer. And then we're going to watch a video, Zach Williams' video. Um, he recorded this video. It's one of his uh, very popular songs about Jesus breaking us free from the chains of our past and ourself. But what makes this video so special is that he's singing it in prison with a bunch of inmates. They are physically in prison, but they are spiritually free. Because this freedom is not based upon your immediate circumstances. It's based upon what God is doing on the inside. And this is a beautiful picture, this song about these guys who are in prison declaring and singing praises of the freedom, the prison break in their heart that they have received through faith in Christ. And you can have the same faith in Christ 
today as well. I want to pray for you right now. If you would say yes to Christ, I want freedom. I'm tired of mistaking my prison for my home. I want out of this. I want out. I want to be free. I'm tired of the weight of my sin locking me up. I want to be free. Walk through the doors of the gospel today. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. Let's pray. If you're here right now and you'd like to know the freedom of a prison break right now, then pray a prayer like this. Use your own words. Use your own words, but pray a prayer, maybe something like this. Dear Jesus, here I am. Take my life. I give you control of my life. I surrender my will to you. God, forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Set me free from the prison of myself. Thank you, God. You are the promise deliverer. Forgive me of my sins. Show me and teach me how to walk with you in the spirit, I pray, dear God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.